According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, our beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 23, picking up where we left off uh, last week, Proverbs 23. Words of the wise, number 11. Words of the wise, number 12. Words of the wise, number 13. We'll see if we get that far today. Words of the wise, 14 maybe. If we get down through words of the wise number 18, that means we finish the chapter, which I don't expect to do today, but um, I think it's very doable in the coming weeks. I am taking a look at the calendar and trying to gauge where we're going to stop. Basically, we have eight more Wednesdays after today. <clears throat> four Wednesdays in, uh, in uh, November and four Wednesdays in December. Um, technically, there's five Wednesdays in December, but I'm going to be going to pre-trib this year in Dallas, so that means... Wednesday, December 8th, if you want to mark your calendars, Wednesday, December 8th is the, is the uh, date that we will not have Proverbs because I'll be in Dallas for pre-trib. All right. God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness to bless our time of study. Father, thankful for the Word of God that's not a human activity. It's entirely divine as your Holy Spirit leads us, guides us, teaches us. We thank you for your faithfulness each and every time that we study to show ourselves approved. So once again, Father, we are looking forward to this feast, looking forward to the manner and means in which you demonstrate your faithfulness. We do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs chapter 23. And talking about the corporal discipline in verses 13 and 14. What we were dealing with a week ago, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. That you're going to benefit him multiple ways, physically and spiritually, and that we're co- we're coercing, we are co- correcting uh, volitional thinking that leads to the behavior that we're trying to correct, but we're also providing a spiritual benefit related to these things. And so, uh, if I have the right slide here, point seven in the outline: words of the wise, number eleven. Corporal punishment of children is biblically and critically necessary. It is biblically necessary. It is critically necessary. The consequences of not doing it are horrifying because the damage that gets done with the unruly children, they become unruly adults, they become unruly problems in your society, in your nation, um, and it leads to just horrible things. And so as we've looking at these, uh, I'm not going to reread all these scriptures here, but um, I think the full impact on this, again, get the Bible verses up, Recognizing that it is correction. The purpose for the discipline is correction. It's instructive, it's correction. The idea of musar in the Hebrew, that we have parental corrective discipline. And we need to thrive in this discipline. This discipline benefits us as we submit to it. This discipline edifies us when we respond to it. 
This is the, the parental discipline that's for our good. And it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, but we can look back after it's done what it's commanded to, or what it's expected to do and thank God that He loves us enough to discipline us. And so it's biblically necessary, it's critically necessary. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. So understand what we're doing here. There's benefits to the soul. There's benefits to adjusting the thinking and the, and the impact that thinking has on the soul. All right. Personal sins do have soul and spirit consequences. And this is true not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. There's a, there's a uh, verse that, that we studied in 1 Corinthians back in the day that talked about Paul delivering over the man of incest. And he said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And I don't believe pastors have this authority today. I think this is entirely a prerogative of apostles in the first century. All right, I don't see anything in the pastoral epistles or later that, that indicates that, that a church age pastor teacher has this kind of authority. But the apostles obviously did as the apostles were representatives of Jesus Christ in that foundational era of the church. And delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that his spirit may be saved. And again, we have this tandem. We have the sin that has to stop and then the benefit that accrues, all right? Either the soul or the spirit benefit that accrues when this sin is stopped. And whether it's stopped by virtue of the, the, the believer who repents and stops his sin and gets back in the line and is walking to fellowship again, that's the ideal circumstance. Or even to the extreme of the sin and the death. If God uh, orders the sin and the death whereby that believer dies early, dies uh, with the Y number of days instead of the X number of days, he dies early, then there is a, a, uh, a reward that is still available for those believers at the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, they're not throwing away all their rewards for all eternity. Something is salvaged in the day of judgment. And that's what we have here in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so um, I think we were going pretty quickly at the end of the time last week, and I just want to make sure that we're not um, we're not fuzzy on this, that we understand there are distinctions to be found between these two principles, okay? Rescuing the soul from Sheol. What are we talking about when we say rescuing the soul from Sheol? From ever seeing it in the first place, okay? Res- I'm sorry? What is Sheol? Oh, physical death. That's what we're talking about. Dying and going to Sheol. Okay? So um, that's a good question. Thank you for asking that. Rescuing the soul from Sheol in Proverbs 23, 14. Let me come back to the text that we're looking at. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. All right, so Sheol is the Hebrew word for hell. Sheol is the Hebrew word for where do you go after you die, Right? And um, it's uh, in the New Testament when these verses get quoted, the, the concept of, of the afterlife, the concept of souls. When souls depart the body, where do they go? Okay? And stop thinking like a church age believer. <laughs> Forget what you know about today, right? Today, absent from the body at home with the Lord, right? We know that anyone that dies today uh, is face to face with Jesus Christ and they're in heaven and things are great. Um, except for the unbelievers, of course, when they die today, they go to hell, okay? Well, in the Old Testament, before the cross, before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, before 
the way things are now, the way things used to be is everybody died and went to hell. Okay? And the Hebrew word is Sheol. Sheol is the, is the place of the dead, is the place of the departed. Now, not everyone was in torments, we've got to be clear on that, that when, the, when, when righteous believers died and we say they died and went to hell, you know, no, they died and went to Sheol. They died and went to Sheol. And we learn because of the, uh, uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right, that there's a couple of compartments within Sheol. There's a couple of compartments and one is for torments. That's where the rich man went. He was in agony. He was begging and pleading that some evangelist might go uh, tell his brothers to not come here. Um, but then on the other side is the place of comfort, the place of, uh, called Abraham's bosom, a place where the righteous could have a, a time of rest. And, uh, and so the provision of Sheol, if you ever just draw a diagram of the underworld, draw a diagram of Sheol, and uh, you've got to have those compartments. Abraham's bosom on one side and torments on the other side. Okay? And a great gulf fixed in between so that no one could cross over from one direction to the other. All right, so that's the idea of Sheol. Make sense? Everybody get that? Um, it's just a nicer way. I mean, some people think you're cursing if you talk about dying and going to hell. All right? You know, hell is a biblical term, but it comes from Sheol, it comes from Hades, it comes from Gehenna, it comes from an assortment of, of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic uh, terminology. So striking him with the rod and rescuing his soul from Sheol. What this is saying, if you discipline your kid in time, then he can repent and he won't die the sinner to death. If you have appropriate parental discipline, then he won't be out there running with the, the gangbangers in the hood. He won't be shot up in Chicago and, and running you know, the, all these tragic stories of these 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and these punk kids. And, and they're just dying left and right. So strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Rescuing the soul from Sheol means to preserve physical life and avoid the sin unto death. Preserving physical life and avoiding the sin unto death. Okay? Because understand, from an Old Testament context, everybody dies and goes to Sheol eventually, right? Even Methuselah. I mean, the longest you're going to live is 969, and Methuselah died and went to Sheol. You can't avoid it forever. Eventually we do die. And eventually kids grow up, okay? Eventually a, a child leaves home and he, he enters into his adult capacity before the Lord, and then the parents are no longer uh, in the, the child-disciplining parental mode. They're now in the adult children praying mode, which is even worse, I think. <laughs> Life is simpler when you can spank them, when they're younger and spankable. Uh, but once they're in their, you know, they've left home, I say they're in their 20s or whatever, you know, they've left home, they're on their own, they're standing before the Lord in their own generation, then uh, uh, it's a different reality at that point. Okay, so rescuing the soul from Sheol means to preserve physical life and avoid the sin unto death. By the way, under Mosaic law, if it got bad enough, the parents themselves would be administering the sin unto death. The parents themselves would be taking the, the uh, uncontrollable uh, young people, bringing them to the city gates, presenting them before the elders, and testifying, sadly, that this next generation is in defiance of Yahweh, of the Lord Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And uh, they've got that final opportunity to repent, or the city elders uh, will put that child to death in, uh, in the judgment of Mosaic law. All right, so now that's rescuing the soul from Sheol, but 
It's slightly different. In fact, more than slightly, it is different. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 5. When Paul said, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, all right, there's a different issue at work here. And that's why I think we've got to be we got to be careful. Sometimes uh, the, uh, different pastors or theologians, they will link passages together uh, as, as parallel texts. They will link passages together as if they, they should be linked together. And then other times you've got to look at that and say, well, slow down, not so fast. The link is, is not what you think it is. There is a link, but it's different, okay? Because it's not a parallel, it's a contrast. And I think uh, we can see it here. All right. So Again, the man of incest, because we have hindsight, we know from 2 Corinthians that he does repent. We know from 2 Corinthians that he repents and that he's restored to fellowship, he returns to the church and things are better down the road. But we don't know that in 1 Corinthians. Okay, We don't know that when Paul delivers him over. We don't know that this is a discipline intended um, for... So in other words, it's not the same as Proverbs 23, 14. It's not in order to avoid the sin unto death or to preserve physical life. Paul is not giving this man over to save his physical life and uh, so he might avoid the sin unto death. In fact, he's anticipating just the opposite. He's anticipating that, that, that this man is going to die under Satan's affliction. That's the anticipation. Oh, by the way, I forgot to read Psalm 30. So this is slightly out of order. Back up a little bit. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. That's, again, that's the concept that if you're avoiding the pit, you know, there's going to come a day, but it's not this day that God kept me alive. And David was celebrating. He should be dead, but God kept me alive, right? So, um, yes, it's a Psalm of David in Psalm 30. You have lifted me up, have not let my enemies rejoice over me. I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. I mean, that's how close to death he was. He was on the verge of of departing. So sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones. Give thanks to his holy name. Yep, you've kept me alive that I will not go down to the pit. So that's the thing. Sheol, the pit, there's other phrases for this. But the term to deliver the soul from Sheol is to keep alive. To keep alive, to not die the sin unto death. That's rescuing my soul from Sheol and it means to preserve physical life and avoid the sin unto death. But that's not the case in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh <clears throat> so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay? The day of the Lord Jesus. That's not the here and now. The day of the Lord Jesus is then and there when we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ when this life is over. Understand it's a big difference. Okay? Um, the day of the Lord Jesus is, is in recognition that we are all accountable and, and on that day we stand before Him for an evaluation. The fire is going to test the quality of our work. And if there's anything that remains, we will have a reward. If there's anything that remains, right? But if there's nothing that remains, we suffer loss, yet we ourselves are saved, yet so as through fire. That's the whole context in 1 Corinthians. And so this is not, this is not trying to avoid the sin and death and preserve physical life. This is a delivering over specifically for the sin and the death so that something can be salvaged 
at the Bema. Something can be salvaged at the judgment seat of Christ. And if he dies sooner rather than later, then something might remain. Okay? And that's the issue here. Tremendously different. Saving the Spirit in the day of the Lord Jesus means rescuing some portion of production for eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ. You're cutting your losses. You're trying to salvage some kind of glory for the Lord. And because if he doesn't die the sin of death, the longer he stays here, the more destruction that happens, the more of the reward that's lost, the more of the production that's then um, thrown away, okay? And the damage that's done. It means rescuing some portion of production for eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And I think the imagery on this is the is the imagery of, of Amos. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. In other words, just rescue what you can. If you can't get the whole sheep, then get part of a sheep. Okay, If all you get is a couple of legs or if all you get is a piece of an ear, Okay? Get what you can get. Just scraps of a sheep, if not the whole sheep. <laughs> and sometimes you can get most of the sheep back, and maybe even the sheep's still alive. Just banged up a bit, you know, missing some things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's kind of what happens when you're shepherding a flock, and, and some of the teeth, uh, or some of the, the sheep are out there getting chewed up on. Snatch them back. Get them back under teaching. And so uh, this whole idea of salvaging what you can, I think that language gets, uh, the, the imagery is pretty vivid, it's pretty stark related to this. And, and in a sense, this is what Paul's doing, trying to get at least a piece of an ear or something, so that when this man of incest is standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there is some kind of reward left over. 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15 where we're building on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. That's the day. The day of, of uh, uh, Christ or the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay? For the church age, the day of Christ is different from what Israel is looking forward to in the Old Testament day of the Lord. We've taught that before as well. All right. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So all the treasure you've laid up in heaven, you've laid it up, you've kept it there, you've not squandered it, you've not thrown it away. And that's, that's right. If you're banking on something you laid up in heaven 20 years ago, are you so sure that it's still there? Or have you been squandering it? Has, can present carnality diminish past treasure in heaven? When it says, let no one take your crown. When it says, hold fast what you have, let no one take your crown. Okay? Now I get you, thieves and, thieves and moths do not uh, steal and, and, and fire does not destroy and all that. There is, heaven is a, is a safe safety deposit box whereby those natural things are, are not available. Thieves aren't going to steal it. Moths aren't going to destroy it. Rust won't diminish it. But can you yourself withdraw from it? 
Can you yourself throw away eternal reward of something that you had done 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago? Okay? I believe, I believe that's the case. That's why we have the warnings that we have. To hold fast what you have, let no one take your crown. Those warnings are, are there for a reason. And I think we're, uh, Paul says to forget what lies behind, reach forward to what lies ahead. And don't get prideful and don't get complacent and don't just assume that, oh yeah, I, I had so many years where I was teaching Sunday school back in the 60s and blah, blah, blah. Well, what are you doing today? And have you been squandering those prior deposits? Anyway, we've taught this before and, and I realize some people are absolutely reject this as a doctrine. That's fine. Bank on that on a, on a faith basis because you can't prove that from the text. And don't tell me about thieves and moths. I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about thieves and moths. I'm talking about you and the squandering that you're doing with your heavenly deposits. All right. In any event, I think... Um, Revelation 3.18, by the way, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments so you may clothe yourself. See, you are making purchases in the heavenly places. You are drawing funds from your heavenly bank account. There's a lot more in the heavenly activity than I think we pay attention to. All right. Anyway, that's where we ran out of time on that last week and Wanted to make sure we were solid on it today. Let's go on to words of the wise number 12. Let's talk about fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, the benefit we have to talk doctrine, the benefit we have to fellowship in the things of the Lord, the design, why God designed humanity the way that He did. Why we're not uh, uh, lab rats or, or uh, <laughs> why it is, you know, there's, there's so many creatures in the animal realm that can be birthed and get kicked out of the nest in, in very short order. And uh, creatures that assume, animals that assume adult status much quicker. In fact, they themselves are procreating and making babies within weeks of their, of their own birth. It's amazing how that happens. Not so in the biology of humanity. It takes longer to grow up, and, uh, and that's by design. Because there's more to it than just creatures of instinct functioning in a, in a, in a natural world. We are the image of God whereby we are portraying a, a begetter and a begotten one. And in portraying the begetter and the begotten one, we have a process whereby we function in relationship with our begetters. <laughs> okay? So, let's look at Proverbs 23, verses 15 and 16. Proverbs 23, verses 15 and 16. The next words of the wise covers two verses. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. So we have the fellowship in doctrine. Mutually communicated divine wisdom. Obviously when the son is small, when the daughter is small, when the child is young, it's not mutually communicated, or very often is it mutually communicated. Uh, you know, when it starts off, the kid's not even saved. So the first thing you've got to do is get the gospel to your children. And then as they get saved, then they can start to grow in the things of the Lord. 
and then you can begin to have mutually communicated divine wisdom. You have the opportunity to discuss, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And uh, <laughs> sometimes um, the kid you know, is learning more than the parents are learning, depending on the church and what, what else is going on. But, um, but sometimes you have the opportunity. And I remember very young in my Christian walk, I think I was five years old or whatnot, I got saved at four, um, but very early in, in, in the process of Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher was, was teaching hypostatic union, was teaching the nature of Jesus Christ, how He was the God-man. And I didn't know any of that. I knew that, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that's how I got saved. I knew that He died on the cross, I knew that I was a sinner, I knew that He died instead of me, I knew that because He paid the price I could have eternal life and all that seemed cool. And I got saved, but then I went to Sunday school and I'm starting to learn more. What I didn't know was that Jesus was God, okay? And so I, I hear this in Sunday school, and my parents are asking, what did you learn in Sunday school? And I said, I said, it was dumb. I, the teacher was telling me something crazy. It was, it was, uh, it was just the dumbest thing in the world. The, the teacher said that, that Jesus was God. <laughs> and my mom and dad said, well, Jesus is God. Yeah. How'd that happen? You didn't tell me that. What do you mean? You know, I thought Jesus was, was, was a man. I thought Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And so this is what happens. And by the way, I've had theologians, PhD types in later years tell me that I was not saved when I thought I was saved because they, they insist that if you don't understand the hypostatic union and the deity of Christ, then you can't be saved. And so you have to have a theological background to understand hypostatic union and, 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 and if you don't believe that Jesus is God. And they, they told me that. I said, you believed in a different Jesus. I said, no, I believed in the same Jesus you believed in. It's just I didn't know. I was, I was, I was ignorant. Okay, and that's fine. They also argue about different things too. But anyway, that's PhDs and what they do. They argue. Um, I throw it right back and say, well, if I wasn't born again, if I didn't have a, a Holy Spirit indwelling me, how did I learn the doctrine about the hypostatic union then? Because without the, the being born again, without being spiritual, uh, aren't the things of God foolishness to the natural man? How would I ever learn that doctrine until I'm saved? See? Anyway. So the point is, as soon as your child has eternal life, start talking to them about the Scriptures that they're learning. And even if it's just the capacity of a four-year-old or the capacity of a five-year-old, keep speaking to them on that level. And uh, they're going to grow up quicker than you realize anyway. And so you, you, you talk doctrine with your five-year-old, talk doctrine with your six-year-old, your seven-year-old, your ten-year-old. Keep talking doctrine every age. Get to the point, now they're teenagers, keep talking doctrine with your 13-year-old, your 14-year-old, your 15-year-old. Keep talking doctrine. Continue the mutual communicated divine wisdom. Because this is where you're bringing up the next generation. And, and a day will come when they will leave father and mother, cleave to one another, become one flesh, when, when they as a husband and wife are in their own generational accountability before the Lord, then you and your adult child can now have adult fellowship in the things of the Lord. You, you and your adult child can have, or your adult parents, um, you can have this intergenerational fellowship in the things of the Lord. And this is what God has designed. Specifically, this is what God has designed. And I think we can see this Old Testament, New Testament alike. 
All right. So if your heart is wise, my own heart will also be glad. An emotional benefit from the child living the life of wisdom. My inmost being, my inmost being, that's the kilia, right? That's the, uh, the kidneys, the, the, the kilia, what in the New Testament they call the splanchnon, the guts. And this is the, a term of, of emotions. That it's a happy thing when your children are walking in the truth. You know, it's curious to me the, uh, the pattern on this. I highlighted this in the Genesis series, Genesis 4.26. At the very bottom of chapter 4, because we had gone through a, a chain of genealogies here, we'd gone through the descent of uh, the descendants of Cain and all the way down through the ugliness of Lamech and the other things there. But Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And Seth, which means appointment and the the idea of the appointed heir, the appointed son, she views it as an appointed replacement. But what we learn later is that this is actually the appointed heir in terms of the the seed of the woman, the, the coming of the Christ. The, you know, when, when Cain murdered Abel, there still was not yet a line of Christ preserved for our redemption. And so, and there were other sons and daughters, there were other, these men had wives and there were other sons and daughters, but God specifically blessed Eve with one final child and uh, has one more birthing and this is Seth. And uh, so he's born as the replacement for Abel and then to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. So now we have Adam, Seth, and Enosh. Now we have that third generation, and this is what's key. Because with that third generation in place, we're told then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I stressed that before, I'm stressing it today, I'm going to keep stressing that that the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord corporately, men collectively, men together in a multi-generational worship. This is not saying that you know Adam and Eve weren't able to pray. Of course they were able to pray. It's not saying that Seth wasn't able to pray. You know, calling upon the name of the Lord is more than just prayer. Okay? There's other applications for it that we find throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. As, as church age believer priests, we call upon the name of the Lord and we do so as a flock. We do so as a corporate body. But we notice here in this text, it requires that third generation from Adam to Seth to Enosh. With three generations, you can have a corporate, that is a bodily, calling upon the name of the Lord. And that's the stress of it there. Not just Genesis 4, but what about Genesis 18, 19? When God talks to himself. You ever talk to yourself? It's okay, it's sanctified. God does it, we can do it. You could ask yourself all kinds of questions. And you can even answer, okay? If you, if you use different voices, though, I'd start to get concerned. That would be... Try to use the same voice when you're asking and when you're answering. Anyway, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Okay, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And this is curious. 
since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he considers there is something unique about Abraham because he's the head of a new covenant people. The Jewish people are being formed at this point, that he has called Abraham and given Abraham the the Abrahamic covenant. So something new is in this world now, and the Jewish people are going to be his stewards, and God does not hide from his stewards the work that he's intending to do through those stewards. And then he goes on to say, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him. Okay, this is multi-generational. This is not only Isaac, but it is the descendants of Isaac, the household after him. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And so we see a multi-generational reality here with Abraham as the federal head, with Abraham as the head of the Jewish people in this new stewardship. teaching the children and the generation after. Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. Now this is a uh, a recap. Deuteros, namas, the second giving of the law. Okay, And uh, deuteros means two and second and namas is the law. It's the second giving of the law. It's the children of the Exodus generation now. The Exodus generation are all going to die. No one can, only two get to enter into the promised land. But now their children are getting ready to enter into the promised land and they have to be placed under the law with the accountability that, uh, that they're given. So Moses is asking them, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? This is their privilege as the covenant nation. This is what Israel is called to be. The covenant nation, the Jewish people, no Gentile nation had these blessings. But corporately, collectively, to call upon the name of the Lord. Yes, that's prayer, but it's more than prayer. It's worship, it's service, it's it's their duties as the covenant nation. Calling upon Him. And they get to do so spanning the generations. What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? So if you want to compare Israel under the law and Egyptians under Egyptian law or Babylonians under the code of Hammurabi or the Romans under Roman law, their 12 tables, or the Greeks under the the sages, you know, the wise men of the Greeks, no one can compare. It's Israel that that is the divine theocracy. It's Israel that has the perfect law of God. And I think America would do well. Texas would do well. We need to model our laws after God's perfect law. Not trying to set up a theocracy, but patterning patterning our laws based on the perfect law that the Jewish people were given. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Now this is what's key, and this is what in a culture is beneficial, and this is what keeps us from having the the generational disconnects that happen so frequently. We've got to be talking doctrine amongst ourselves with our children and our adult sons and our grandsons. Because when it comes to raising the next generation, it shouldn't be the grandparents doing it, it should be the, the, the parents doing it. But as far as the raising is concerned, 
but the fellowship and the, 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 when we talk doctrine and when we mutually speak the divine wisdom one to another, that does span two generations, three generations. In fact, in our day and age, we can get to a fourth and a fifth generation even with mutual, uh, mutually communicated divine wisdom. So do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your sons and grandsons. Okay, And if you think about it, this is the great unifying value that we have in the body of Christ. Because, uh, you know, I, any, from one generation to the next, everything's different. Okay, Try talking to our kids today about things back when, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't have, you know, talking about writing letters to Sherry when I was in the desert, you know, all kinds of things. It's, it's a different world these days. But you want to know what's the same? Doctrine. Serving the Lord. Functioning in a local church. And we can, it's the great unifier for all of these things. Or talking to my parents about, um, you know, uh, Elvis Presley in the 1950s and all the, you know, um, things back in those days, and then the hippies in the 60s, and all the, oh my, okay? Different world back then. Or talking about the Depression, talking about what they went through in the 30s. In fact, it might be good to refresh our mind on the, on the 1930s, if in fact we're headed for another one, okay? The point is, there will always be generational disconnects, and there always have been. Always, okay? But doctrine... Doctrine brings it all together. When, we, when we're talking over the things of the Lord, talking about how we got saved and who led you to faith and, and what are you growing in and what churches are you functioning in and all these things that you're doing in your service for Jesus Christ. Make it them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth. That they may teach, that they may teach their children. Okay, they may teach their children. In other words, if you keep this going, the grandparents don't have to raise the grandchildren because the parents are raising the grandchildren. Okay, and then the grandchildren are going to raise their children. Each generation. This is what it's about, because we are portraying the begetter and the begotten one, God the Father and God the Son. And the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ with the begetting of the Father, these powerful doctrines from Proverbs 8 and other places. This is our joy. Not just, you know, mating and producing litters. Animals do that. Okay? But raising the next generation in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. And this is interesting because when you're calling the angels and humanity to bear witness, you're getting a, a, the attention of folks, first of all, in the angelic realm who don't procreate, the angelic realm that don't marry or give in a marriage, the angelic realm that don't have the, uh, the privilege of the begetter and begotten one tandem that we have. Some of them are called gods and some of them are called sons of gods, but all of them are created. None of them are begotten. None of the angelic realm is begotten. The only, the only begotten is the only begotten as far as the angel of the Lord is concerned, connected to angels and being begotten. All right, 
Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And you know, it's a curious thing when humanity fails to achieve what they're called to do. When humanity fails to render or to bring up that next generation in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, then they become worse than animals. Because the animals have at least the common sense to know their creator, right? They don't have the, the um, what is the imagery here? The ox and the donkey. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's manger. So this, this human being that's not been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that's not been brought up to fear the Lord, they're worse than animals, at least an animal has the creator-creature dis- uh, distinction in, in, in view. The animal hasn't rebelled against their creator. The animal knows it's an animal. But the believer without the fear of the Lord, the human being without the fear of the Lord, worse than an animal in this way. So Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Now this is not, this is not good. <laughs> okay? And this is, this is the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah has, a, has a, a non-happy message to give as he gets started here. Alright, there's more on that. Into the New Testament, of course, in the... Um, my favorite text on this is 3rd John. Absolutely. 3rd John. John calls himself the elder. And you can imagine if he was around in the, in the 30s. How young was John when he was a disciple of Jesus? When he was reclining on Jesus' breast and that? Pretty young. And he's still around in the 90s. So 60 years have gone by as he writes the, the first, second, third John, as he writes the book of Revelation in 96 AD. So he calls himself the elder, probably the oldest believer he knows. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. I love that. <laughs> this is like the, the proper order. And uh, most uh, prayer meetings don't start this way, but because uh, most prayer meetings tend to be related to health and physical prosperity and money and jobs and, and other things. Those things need to be placed in, in relationship to the soul prosperity. Just as your soul prospers. Maybe your physical health and your physical finances might be a reflection of your soul prosperity. And he goes on to say, I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. It's the best news he could have received all day. Man, Gaius is walking in truth. Might have come as a surprise. But he says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Absolutely walking in the truth. There is no greater joy. And so for parents, biological parents, spiritual parents, in uh, you know your father in the faith and whatnot, you know if there's someone that you've led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they're a believer now, and you 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 want to know that they're walking in doctrine, you want to know that they're living with the Lord, 
It's, it's heartbreaking to think that, yeah, they're saved, but they're, they're, they're out there in the world walking like a pagan. Okay? Heartbreaking. No greater joy. It's an emotional benefit. This is the, the, the like we talk about the splanknon, we talk about the, 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 the kilya in the Hebrew, the, the kidneys or the reins. It's an emotional benefit. It's a, it's a source of happiness. Okay? And, and you want other things, obviously. You want your kids to grow up. And yes, you have secular concerns. And you have earthly things. And you're wondering about you know, who they're going to marry and where they're going to live and the kind of job and all that. But you know, all that just fades to nothing compared to are they living in the Word of God? Are they under doctrinal teaching? Are they disciples of Jesus Christ living in the Word of God? That's first and foremost above anything else. And then those earthly things really kind of become irrelevant. I mean, I don't care if they're a successful uh, whatever and making all kinds of money and living in a mansion somewhere and all that. If they're not walking in doctrine, who cares? That's a waste. All right. So the privilege we have, the joy in mutually communicated divine wisdom. And if you think about it, this is the pattern of God the Father and God the Son. What are they doing as they fellowship together? What are they doing? What is Jesus doing when he goes off by himself to pray? Okay? And it's not just gimme, 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 Father, I need stuff. But there's the fellowship in the Word of God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And we have the opportunity to, to meditate upon the truth of the Word of God, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, to just be meditating on a passage, to be considering what does this mean and, and, and how does this glorify Christ and, and all these other benefits we have in the Word of God. The joy in mutually communicated divine wisdom. <laughs> and this was, you know, something that I was hoping that maybe might exist when, with my earthly father. But it just didn't seem that after mom died he had any interest at all. And after the funeral, the funeral was the last time he was ever in this building. And as, as if um, never wanted to talk about anything of the Lord after that. It was just heartbreaking. In any event. Words of the wise, number 13. Do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord for eternity. Do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord for eternity. All right, so we've got the advantage of uh, fellowship across the generations within the family, but now we've got a snare that has to be avoided. Look at verses 17 and 18. Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. I kind of went wild on that slide, so let me block off part of it until we're ready. All right. Do not envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord for eternity. Proverbs 23, 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. All right, verse 18 expands verse 17 and gives a rationale for what we have to keep in our mind and not lose track of as we obey this command. Do not envy sinners. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Beyond uh, your mind just thinking about it, your heart can dwell on it. The core of your being, the center of your, of your spiritual life can can venture into a realm of envy and you got to get it out of there. And if it starts to walk that direction, haul it out of there and place it where it needs to be. Keep your heart, place your heart where it needs to be. We talked about this um, 
in verse 12 when, it, when we said apply your heart to discipline and your ears to the words of knowledge. That is you're placing your heart where it needs to be. If it's wandering away, put it right back. Put it right back. You are, you are sovereign over your heart. And God expects you to, uh, to put your heart where it belongs. And, uh, and don't blame your heart and say, oh, well, it just, it just got away from me there. Well, God expects you to put it where it needs to, to stay. And if it keeps trying to move away, then spank it back. So apply your heart. That's the Musar discipline in verse 12. And your ears. If your ears keep wandering, if your ears keep itching, if your ears uh, you know, uh, aren't as hungry for doctrine as they used to be, yank them back. You're sovereign over your ears. You ain't come back. Put your heart where it's supposed to be. Put your ears where it's where they're supposed to be. And in verse 17, do not let your heart envy sinners. If it starts to, stop it. Retrain that heart. All right. <clears throat> so we have this. And the fear of the Lord is the big part of it. Um, Live in the fear of the Lord always. Clearly when you allow the fear of the Lord to diminish, that's when the heart is going to start going wrong. So keep yourself in the fear of the Lord. You've got to consistently, constantly stay in that. This is a pattern that we've had previously in, in Proverbs, so it's nothing new really. And even from childhood, your parents were teaching you this particular doctrine. Proverbs 3.31, do not envy a man of violence, do not choose any of his ways. For the devious or an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. So don't envy that. When you're looking around and you're looking at others and you find things that are admirable, you find things that are enviable for the wrong reasons. That's what you got to stop and say, now why would a man of violence be, be envied? Well, because, I mean, just look at him. He takes what he wants. He gets what he wants. Who stops him? There seems to be an attraction there. There seems to be, you know, Nice guys finish last and this guy gets what he wants. And there's a carnal part of you that says, you know what? I could do that. I could do that. He's getting away with it. I can get away with it. Why, why am I not having what I want? No, don't choose his ways. The devious were an abomination to the Lord. But he is intimate with the upright. And this is what happens though. But see, when your heart starts to wander, you don't want to be intimate with the Lord. Got to keep the priority in place. Uh, in the next chapter, this theme is going to come back again in Proverbs 21, verses 1 and 2. When we cross over from words of the wise, number 30, no, I'm sorry, from uh, when we cross over from number 18 to number 19, there's a chapter division there. And when we, when we cross over into Proverbs chapter 24, then uh, these verses become words of the wise, number 19. Remember, we're tracking 30 of these. So words of the wise, number 19, is a restatement of number 13. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. And the whole chain from mental attitude sin to sins of the tongue to overt sins, it all gets connected right here in the slavery that you're in by the time you, uh, you fulfill all of this. Really, this is a reflection of a, a Davidic psalm, Psalm 37, and um, <laughs> we could actually read a 40-verse psalm this morning and cover it from top to bottom. I think the first 11 verses make it clear. But this is, uh, this is the battle that David had to deal with. And, and some of the wicked that David was looking around at, some of them were his own brothers. Remember, he was the runt kid of, of his litter, the youngest and smallest of his siblings. 
And uh, the older brothers uh, were military men serving King Saul and very uh, dismissive of, uh, of Jesse and his tiny little flock there in, in Bethlehem and uh, very much scornful of David and, and uh, any of that. And so some of the evildoers that he had to deal with were his own siblings. And then his sister uh, had a couple of kids and, and, and the nephews that he had to deal with, Joab and some of these guys, that was another kettle of fish. And then he had some other things. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes these verses seem to be hollow because they, you know, well, how soon is that going to be? Quickly? Wither quickly? I don't see it. They seem to be thriving. That's only the externals. That's only my, my observation, looking at it with the wrong set of eyes. How do I know it's the wrong set of eyes? Because I'm envying what I'm looking at. <laughs> I'm not looking at it with the right set of eyes. If I was, I wouldn't be envying it. But if I'm looking at it with divine viewpoint, I won't envy it, and I'm going to see how quickly they wither. I'm going to see that even though they seem to have temporal life riches, it's not lasting, it's not eternal. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and cultivate faithfulness. Just keep doing what you're called to do. The reward will come. It's God's blessing. And don't think it's reward on this earth either. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. If you're living the Christian way of life biblically, then you're not envying the stuff that other people have. You're not coveting. You're not wrapped up in material possessions. You're serving the Lord. You're walking with Him. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. The fruit you're bearing is for eternity. The impact you're having in your family, in your uh, in your church, in your culture, is eternal. You will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your judgment as the noonday. When's that going to happen? Well, for those who have eyes to see it, they'll see it here and now, but ultimately it's going to happen in the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be exposed. All things will be laid bare. There will be eternal glory. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, for it leads only to evil doing. And this is what happens when you get your eyes off the Lord and you start looking around and these guys are doing what they're doing. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while. Why does he keep using these phrases? Behold, I come quickly. Yet in a little while. Okay? Same thing in the Old Testament, same thing in the New Testament. The book of Revelation closes with, Behold, I come quickly. It's been 2,000 years. Yeah? Okay? Why are you so temporal? Why are you so finite in your thinking? Get the big picture. Yet in a little while, the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Jesus addressed this in the Beatitudes about the meek that shall inherit the earth. And he's speaking about the, the blessings of walking in the light and, and in particular as the kingdom is approaching. That was, remember, the Sermon on the Mount was early in Jesus' ministry when the kingdom of heaven is still at hand. And the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, humility that was preparatory for 
entering into the kingdom. So clearly, these principles, as David wrote them in Psalm 37, they're being reflected here in the Proverbs. Solomon addresses them here. He's going to address them again in chapter 24. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. So that's your red flag. That's your trigger. If you've got an envious eye and you see something and you find that the middle attitude sin of envy is creeping in, it's likely that the, the fear of the Lord has already departed. It's already been diminished. It might be your red flag to say, you know what? My fear of the Lord is not what it should be. So let that be the, the red flag. And then start and remind yourself about the, uh, the eternal reward. Just rem- remind yourself that the daily life today is preparation for all eternity. Have that eternal view. There is a future. You have a future and a hope because God has a plan for you. You have a future. For the unbeliever, what future do they have? In a sense, they don't have any at all because, I mean, their destiny is the lake of fire for all eternity, sealed off, sealed away, apart from the presence of God's glory. What kind of a future is that? Apart from the Lord, it's not even a future at all, really. It's a destiny, but not a future. Not, certainly not a hope. So there is a future. There is a hope. And your hope will not be cut off. So with that light of eternity, it can shape our thinking. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Okay, Living in the light of eternity means that we have a fear of the Lord here and now. And so we're not going to envy sinners. We're not going to sit around. We're not going to daydream about, ooh, wouldn't that be fun to do? Okay, and, uh, and whatever. Watching a James Bond movie and dreaming about, oh, you know, if I could do all that or, you know. No, that's stupid, okay? But uh, trying to, some people live their sin, their sin life out vicariously through imagination and daydreams and wondering and, uh, and all of that. No, don't envy the sinners. Don't let your heart envy sinners. Now, beyond that, more on this slide here. The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast. And the way Proverbs puts it, you have a future, they don't. Okay? You have a future, they don't. And that's a pretty stark contrast. That's a blunt way to express it. And this is how Proverbs lays it out there. Now we might refine it, we might, uh, we might not like it the way Proverbs defines it because we might, we know more than Proverbs knows. We might look at it and say, well, they have a future. It's the lake of fire. Okay, stop. We get that. Just for right now, just focus on what Proverbs says. Focus on how Proverbs is drawing the contrast. You have a future, they do not. The saved and the lost have an eternal contrast. So in Proverbs 23, 18, this is us. Surely there is a future, your hope will not be cut off. 24.20, that's them. There will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. See the contrast? We have a future, they don't. As far as in eternity with, with Yahweh, of course, we have a future. They don't. They have a destiny with a lake of fire. They do not have a future. It is not a future, it is not a hope. Their eternal estate in the lake of fire. So the saved and the lost have an eternal contrast which should motivate a temporal contrast here and now. The eternal contrast should motivate the temporal contrast here and now. 
since we're no longer what we used to be, quit walking like it. We now have a new nature in Christ. And I've got to close with this because it's already, it's already uh, 1058. Remember, I can't cheat and say the clock is two minutes slow at the start of the hour and then pretend it's not two minutes slow at the end of the hour. Say, it's only 1058, I've still got two more minutes. No, I, I get it. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That was then, this is now. You have a new destiny, a new future. You have a future and a hope. Walk like it today. Walk like it today. 1 Peter 2, 9-11. through 11. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And so there's what you used to be, there's what you are now. Live like it. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. Continue to bless our studies in Proverbs. We have eight more sessions to go before, uh, before the end of the year. We just thank you for being faithful. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.